Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. To the last episode of Still Watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. I'm Anthony Bresnikan, the LA correspondent. We have a little unusual episode for you today, but I'm really excited about it. We um, we are doing sort of like a wrap up mailbag. We did something similar with Wandavision, so Anthony and I are here to talk about some of your emails that you sent in. Thank you so much. Uh, we also have a, a great interview with Sarah Finn, who's the longtime casting director at uh, Marvel headquarters. So she talked to me about you know over a decade of casting Marvel projects, and that was really interesting, especially considering you know how long ago Sebastian Stan, etc., joined joined. And we talked about Julie Louis Dreyfus. Talked about all of it. So uh, you will hear from Sarah at the end of the episode. Richard Lawson is not with us today. We are joined instead by a very special guest. Rebecca Theodore Vachon is here. She's a film and TV critic. Um, and she is also the creator of the Spectrum Lounge, which is a podcast that highlights creators of color in Hollywood and pop culture. The New York Times, RogerEber.com, Entertainment Weekly. We are so thrilled to have her. Rebecca, hello. How are you? Hi. Hello. Welcome, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> of course. We brought you up on the show a couple times. And yeah. Yes, you did. Thank you for the shout outs. <laughs> you do great work. You and Robert Young, uh, at your recaps uh, and uh, distillation of everything that's going on in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier was really great. Her co-host on the show on the Spectrum Lounge is... Uh, uh, Air Force veteran, so he brought a really cool perspective on uh, on on that life experience to what was going on with Sam and Buffy in this uh, show. Yeah, so we are here. Rebecca has been looking at your emails along with us, and we picked out a few that we want to address. Um, I wanted to start. I'm just going to dive right in, guys. Um, mm-hmm. And also, you can always email us still watching pod at gmail dot com. Right now, of course, we're also doing Richard and I are doing Mayor of Easttown for HBO. We will probably all be back for Loki in June. I I know I said it was like a question, but it's probably not a question. We'll probably be back for Loki. So you can get your Loki questions in now if you want. Still watching pod at gmail.com is the place to contact us. Um, but I wanted to start with this question of legacy, which is something that was really interesting, um, at least to Rebecca and to me. And I want to start so that with this email from Michael. I wrote about every character, but this is a section he wrote on Sharon. He said, 
I agree with all that has been said on the storyline. Big, ugh. The one thing that got me, like so many others, was the abandonment by Steve and Sam. How the show approached her missing your story makes Steve and Sam into assholes from the terrible Civil War. It went, thanks for the kiss and the equipment, but peace out. It was all you ever meant to us. This is not Trek at all with how the creators have been presenting. The characters have been presented in all of their appearances. To just up and forget about her? Like, what? This whole situation, I guess, showed us that Steve was not perfect? I really don't want to think about it. The more I do, the more upset I am at what they did and what they're trying to do it, uh, you know, what it what it does to me. Um, and I want to bring up, so Steve's legacy there and the way in which the Sharon storyline impacts that, but also the way in which Sharon's story impacts the Peggy Carter legacy. And then also something that was really interesting that um, I've heard Rebecca talk about a little bit is the way in which... Isaiah's timeline impacts Peggy and Howard Stark and their legacies. So Rebecca, I want to start with you and like just hear your thoughts on what you think the show is trying to say about the legacies of these of these MCU greats, Steve, Peggy, Howard, etc. Well, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, um, my co-host who helped me, Robert Young, who helped me to uh, recap Falcon and the Winter Soldier, he said something really profound to me um, when he thinks about Steve Rogers. Um, he says that you know, Steve Rogers is incorruptible, but he's not infallible. Mm. Um, and I and I think that's something that's really important. And I and I actually think that this is something that excites me going into phase four of the MCU because the first three stages were basically setting up, you know, the respective franchises and their interactions with each other with the Avengers and leading into Infinity War and Endgame. Um and I mean, honestly, who wants perfect characters, right? Like just because you have superpowers doesn't mean that you're perfect. Um, and I and I think this is something that is maybe sort of like in the cultural zeitgeist right now, because we're living in these very dark and uncertain times. Um, we can look at, you know, Watchmen, the HBO series. Um, we can look at The Boys, the Amazon series, which just wrapped up its second season and then Invincible Oh my God, I'm so obsessed with that show. But <laughs> it's really like yeah. these these shows are like these examinations of like the fallibilities of these people that have, you know, not only superpowers, but privilege, right? Because for me, a lot of the power that these characters have is a metaphor or um, symbolizes some sort of, uh, I would say, privilege in the way that they move in the world, you know, access and power. Um, so I actually think it's kind of cool for us not to see Steve as perfect. Um, if you watch Civil War, I mean, depending on what day that I wake up, sometimes I'm on Steve's side, sometimes I'm on Tony's side. I think both <laughs> of them were right and both of them were wrong. I mean, was it wrong for him to keep that secret from Tony that Bucky killed his parents? Perhaps. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I understand I understand his um his rationalization for it. Right. I mean, yeah. but I think some, but I think some of that had to do, there was some selfishness there too. Right. In the fact that Bucky is really his only living connection. Right. And that just kind of, ex it, it, I think it extends to the other characters in the MCU. Right. Um, I just revisited agent Carter mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, you know, Howard Stark, I mean, Dominic Cooper is, is a very, the younger Howard Stark, he's a very, uh, you know, charismatic actor. But I mean, watching Agent Carter again, I was like, wow, Howard Stark, Stark was really a jerk. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. and just this idea, because if you look at season one of Agent Carter, it's really about, one of the main storylines is really about um, 
Peggy having to retrieve these weapons of mass destruction that Howard had hidden. He had hidden hidden them in a vault in his mansion and somebody basically cut a hole in the floor and stole all of it. And so every episode was sort of like a MacGuffin type where, you know, it was like a poison gas or, you know, something that could blow up five city blocks. And it's it was like, wow. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. for you to wake up in the morning to to think about things that would actually harm and kill human beings. I mean, that's something to examine. I mean, we do see Tony trying to wrestle with that legacy throughout the Iron Man trilogy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, not everybody's part. Nick Fury's made some questionable decisions. I think everybody, if you look at any character in the MCU, there's some not so nice stuff there. You know, Mm -hmm. but I think that's a reflection of real life. Totally. And I think that's what makes the MCU characters so interesting. I just think Mm -hmm. that like, I, it's, it's, I just have weirdness around Steve in that regard, because there is, I'm willing, I'm definitely willing to accept a lot of fallibility in Steve. Ditching, Ditching Sharon is not a pocket that I feel like I can like comfortably put that in. I don't know, Anthony, what do you, what do you think? I've always thought that one of the most interesting things about superheroes in general, whether it's Marvel or DC or what have you, is you have the ability to to do great things and to save people and to help people, but you cannot save everybody. So mm. somewhere, when you're stopping that bus from going off a cliff, someone is drowning. When you're stopping that plane from crashing, mm-hmm. someone is getting hit by a subway or falling into traffic, you know, like, and that there's always something that you're going to, in your back of your mind, say, I wish I could have done differently. And I think maybe, uh, I don't mean to use this term in a callous way, but, uh, but maybe Sharon Carter was just collateral damage that there was so much after civil mm-hmm. war, everybody was on the run. There's limited uh, Steve has limited abilities to help her. He can't pardon her, you know? And I just think sometimes people mess up and they don't, you know, they don't uh, check all of their, all of their people the way they should and don't follow up on the things that they should follow up on. Ask my inbox about that. Uh, I, just don't, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't know that uh, as much as I agree with so much of what you're saying, especially Rebecca, what you're saying about the the flawed nature of these Marvel characters. Um, I don't know that I'll ever be convinced that Steve would kind of forget about Peggy how, or about, about Sharon. However, um, I, I do want to reference this uh, interview that Malcolm Spellman, the, the show's creator and head writer, um, gave to the Fade to Black podcast where he talked about what they wanted for Sharon here was to give her a place to move from in the MCU. And, and let, let me like mm-hmm. just introduce my sort of like – my my big brain theory of what happened to Sharon Carter. They introduced Sharon Carter in Winter Soldier. She's sort of a small part of the tapestry there. And they sort of they they ex- they put their foot on the gas in terms of making her this like modern day love interest for Steve in mm-hmm. Civil War. And one of the reasons, and we're going to talk about Bucky and his sexuality in a bit, but one of the reasons that a lot of people feel like that happened in Civil War, that kiss happened at all, was to counteract this very popular Steve and Bucky fan uh, shipping thing narrative that was going on and to like really straighten out Steve uh, in a way by giving him like a girl to smooch in that movie. Whether or not that's true, what is true is that Sharon, like in that film, and it's not Emily Van Camp's fault, Sharon wasn't like a popular character after that film. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
I think this goes back to something that you and I have talked about a lot, Anthony, like Kevin Feige's desire to like fix things that didn't work perfectly the first time they tried it. Like we talked about Ultron and some other things. And I think they wanted to say, okay, we let's make Sharon really interesting to people. And something that your co-host said, Rebecca, was like that Sharon was never interesting to him before, but now Uh she's kind of interesting in this power broker position. And he's kind of interested to see like where she moves from here and how she goes. And so like, I can understand why they wanted to put her here to put her in a place that was really interesting to viewers. I'm just, I feel like with a lot, as with a lot of this Falcon Winter Soldier stuff, they might've skipped like three steps in order to get there. Does that make sense? Yes. Yep, I agree. I agree with that. I like yeah. I get I get what they wanted to give her and I just don't feel like they fully, you know, justified putting her there, but now that she's there, it is an, a more interesting place for her to be than just sort of like helpful girl Friday quasi mm-hmm. love interest sort of thing. Yeah. Well, and it also yeah. it also gives her a little bit of agency, I think, and mm-hmm. I mean, like you were saying Joanna about when we talk about legacies, because we know Sharon is, is Peggy's niece, um, you know, that last episode when she uh, was given that pardon and uh, it was that senator that was like, welcome back, Agent Carter. And it, that just gave me chills like, wow, you know what I mean? And but yeah, of course, there's and now it's sort of like this idea of Peggy we knew Peggy to just be to be like this really good and moral person. And now her you know, her niece could potentially be going rogue. We don't really know who she's talking to on the phone. But I, I just want to remind people really quick, and this was a conversation that I, I had in my podcast, and the fact that, again, when we look at these characters, you know, they're not as perfect as, we, as they seem. Because for all of the heroics that Peggy did, let's remember, she is the co-founder. She is one of the co-founders of S.H.I.E.L.D., and we know Shield has done some underhanded stuff. Um, and part of part of you know we we understood this in Winter Soldier is, is that Shield recruited some former Hydra scientists like Doctor Zola. You know what I mean? Which is really a reflection of of real life American history, where um, the American government welcomes certain uh, you know former Nazi scientists and doctors. Yeah, so there's a question there of like, really, you this this these are the people that you want you know, in your circle. So there's something to be examined there. I think her storyline also presents a zag to everybody else's zig. Like uh, you've got Bucky who's trying to come back from having been the bad guy as the winter soldier. You've got even John Walker, like he's heading toward being a bad guy, but he thinks he's going a different direction in his (laughs) own brain. Um, You've got, um, Sam kind of going in circles because he's just not sure what path is the right one for him, whether he should pick up the shield. Obviously he gives it away and doesn't think he should take it. Then he decides he does want to do it. But Isaiah gives him advice and tells him not what not to do. And with Sharon, you have somebody who's like, I've been a good guy for a while now and this sucks. And I've been <laughs> discarded. I'm going to go bad, right? You guys, she's going the other direction down the freeway when there's a traffic jam. Everybody's <laughs> like, I'm just going to turn around and I'm going to go bad. And I'll see you guys when I see you. <laughs> well, something that's, and, and something to bear in mind and something that Rebecca was saying on her show is that um, uh, Mar- there's nothing Marvel loves more than redeeming a bad guy, right? And we'll talk about that in mm-hmm. terms of, in terms of John Walker. And certainly like the best example, as Rebecca pointed out, was, is Loki. But like if they put Sharon in this position where she's doing this thing, she feels justified in what she's doing. And maybe she's going to come back to the light 
um, on a on an arc that we're going to see play out over, you know, maybe she's going to be part of Armor Wars. Maybe she's going to be part of Secret Invasion. Like, we don't mm-hmm. know. Certainly, they're setting her up to be part of something else going forward. But um, I thought that was interesting. All right. I want to talk about um, uh, bu- the Bucky of it all. So on that same podcast, the Fade to Black podcast, that's where um, Malcolm Spellman's first quote a couple weeks ago about sort of like watch this space for Bucky's sexual identity um that's where his first quote came from and then in this follow-up interview which he did after everything was said and done he's sort of like i kind of regret saying i like that i didn't know that people would latch on to that um he's still learning the way in which everyone in the marvel fandom latches on to like every single thing that someone says um so here's an email we got from lee about bucky who says um It sucks to think that Spellman said to keep watching, knowing full well that there would be no further exploration or acknowledgement of any queer potential. It was almost reminiscent of when Teen Wolf actively used the fans' desires for their ship to come true to keep people watching. I wish you just said that they didn't realize uh, Tigers on Tinder had queer connotations or that that wasn't their intention or something along those lines, rather than suggest that we might get something we've wanted for ages. Your discussion about the keep watching comment from Malcolm Spellman very quickly veered into shipping territory. And while shipping is absolutely an important part of any fandom, and maybe especially this one, I feel like that missed the mark a little. I won't speak for other queer people, but it is less important for me that Bucky ends up with any particular man than for him to be able to maybe exist as a queer character. So often queer characters and properties like this are shoved into safe and stable relationships because they will be less threatening to straight viewers if they're already taken, which is something we're seeing with the Eternals. An unattached queer character is too unstable, too risky. So the solution is to immediately put them in the most normative institutions known to man, marriage and parenthood. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, this, this is a bigger MCU question um, that yeah. we are sort of like teetering on the brink of Marvel, hopefully not being afraid to just let gay people exist in their universe. Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've been witness to the Bucky is queer shipdom i've seen the shipdom for bucky and steve right that mm-hmm. was like from first avengers so that's almost like a decade old um mm-hmm. i've seen the ship with uh bucky and sam um i've mm-hmm. seen the ship with bucky and zemo there's all sorts of you know and and fanfic plays a, a huge part in that i think the the larger problem like you said it's 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 not bucky specifically the larger problem is actually the MCU's Achilles heel, one of its lack of, of queer representation, right? And not only the lack of it, what they're also guilty of in some ways is what we call queer baiting, right? Where mm-hmm. it's this idea of presenting these characters of, oh, they could possibly be, you know, romantically um, interested in each other. And then they go there straight hetero ways, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so it's, it's a way to kind of a, a marketing tool in some ways to bring in the queer community. And so you have a lot of queer viewers, which I think they're right that they feel that they're being used. Like, okay, you want my viewership and you want my, you know, you want my ticket money. You want me to, to watch the show and live tweet about it or whatever. But it would be nice if we could actually see ourselves and our, uh, you know, sexual preferences, um, you know, reflected in that. And of course, you'll have people that are like the same people who are screaming about comic book movies shouldn't be about politics. You'll have people that are screaming about, oh, what, well, what does um, someone's sexuality have to do with it? Well, you didn't ask that question when Pop, you know, when Pepper and Tony were getting it on throughout the whole, you know, we've, we have quite a few hetero pairings mm-hmm. <laughs> in the yeah. MCU. So, mm-hmm. you know, like Star Lord and Gamora. So, I mean, yes, clearly. He- the heterosexual representation is there 
and marvel. And so I think it is only fair that the queer community is asking, where is ours, right? And I think that what, what hasn't helped Marvel is that we've, we've been hearing these stories, like the fact that, uh, you know, we know that uh, the Valkyrie character that, that was introduced mm-hmm. in Ragnarok is supposed to be bisexual, um, but we didn't see that. And I, from what I understand that there there was a scene where there was supposed to be some woman leaving out of Valkyrie's apartment. So it would be hinted that they had some sort of, you know, right. sexual mm-hmm. that got cut out. And then a couple of years ago, I remember um, these were early screenings of Black Panther where there was a scene between I think it was the Okoye character and Ayo. I saw that, it. I saw yeah, that footage. You saw it. OK, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. they there were like there was definitely some chemistry. Mm-hmm. But it again, it made the cutting floor. So there's sort of like this history of like almost getting there almost and then then they just kind of pull back you know what i mean but i will say this as far as and i i think that marvel if they really think about it i think now that they're in phase four they are totally ready ready to have like queer characters and not in some queer baiting way or in some you know afterthought in a in a press release where it's like oh yeah by the way they were you know they were bisexual or whatever but (laughs) actually committing to that i think they're in a space right there are they make billions of dollars. Anybody who decides not to watch a Marvel movie because two men kiss. I mean, that's something you need to talk to your therapist about. I don't know. I mean, people were, you know, complaining about Falcon and the Winter Soldier dealing too much with race, but that didn't stop them from tuning in. So, <laughs> yeah. And we're yeah. going to we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, Anthony, I want to I want to hear what you have to say about this. I think my kids are going to grow up and what they're going to say, looking back at the pop culture of their childhood is how come we didn't how come I didn't see anybody like my friends, two moms in the uh Marvel Cinematic Universe or my or my friends two dads right like mm-hmm. they know they know LGBTQ people and their real lives and they're not seeing them on screen and they and they have no problem with it they're not confused or baffled or um, uh, torn up by it or you know disturbed like you know there's always that what about the children how do you explain this to the children it's very <laughs> easy it's very easy to explain it to children is that you know, what I've explained to my kids was uh, as long as you're old enough and the person is good to you, you can love whoever you like. <laughs> and I think uh, that's very easy for a kid to understand, even if they're before the age where they understand sex and sexuality and all of that. Uh, they understand love. What I wanted to say is, and I've mentioned this before, talking about other Marvel properties, is that I think one of the successes of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that it makes you really care about the characters, it makes you care about the heroes in one way One of the ways it does that is it gives them other people in their lives that they love, that they care about. You care about Mm -hmm. Tony because he loves Pepper. Uh, You care about about, uh, um, Steve Rogers because he loves Bucky, you know, and and those two have a thing. Whatever that thing is, it's it's there. And uh, all of the characters, even the Guardians of the Galaxy, they all have this sort of grudging love and respect for each other, and they care about each other, and that makes you care about them. And I'm thinking of this documentary called uh, Disclosures, and it's a Netflix doc directed by Sam Fader, and it's about trans representation in Hollywood or misrepresentation in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And one of the people that Sam interviews talks about how important it is to have trans characters in popular entertainment because audiences who may not know somebody or may not be aware that somebody they know is uh, has a different sexuality than what's heteronormative, um, they'll see a character in a movie and they care about that character. And therefore, that uh, 
that they'll see like a, say a trans actor playing a character in a movie they'll care about that character and then that empathy gets transmitted to the actor or to other people like that in real life and it almost fiction has the power to spark empathy in people who may be unaware of their surroundings and i think that's why it's important to have queer characters in the marvel cinematic universe and in star wars and these other big things because it's a good way to spark empathy in people who who may who, who may just be living in a little bit of a bubble or have blinders on yeah no i i think obviously i mean we should talk about um another factor in this conversation, which is the, the Chinese market, right? This idea that like, um, the Chinese market is, is much more, um, you know, unreceptive to, to this, um, subject than, than the American market. Uh, and, and that Marvel has catered to the Chinese market, like in, you know, throughout its run. So. But I, I wanted to talk about something that Malcolm Spellman, this, I think maybe the last time I referenced this interview, but maybe not. Um, the, <laughs> one of the things that he said about uh, Marvel's enduring desire to appeal to the uh, entire audience, if you want to put it that way, which mm-hmm. is uh, Eamon asked him in this interview on the Faded Black podcast, like, this is obviously a show about race and about racism, but you never say the word racism or racist in the show sort of was that a conscious decision like why you know why mm. is that the case and malcolm was saying you know because of the way that the marvel fandom responded to black panther because of the way that they responded to killmonger they felt like they didn't have to underline what they were saying that anyone with like you know two two brain cells to rub together could see that that was what the show was about so that they could do it but Something that he was saying, and then I'm reading a little bit between the lines, but not that deeply between the lines. So he was saying is by not saying it explicitly, they don't risk alienating the people who might say there's too there, you're bringing too many political issues into this, or might feel quote unquote alienated, which is something that like frustrates me that some that Marvel would try to cater to that audience, but at the same time, like that you know marvel is trying to make four quadrant entertainment but something like they explicitly don't say race or racism or racist in this show about race um and that was a conscious choice it's one of those show don't tell things like i don't think anybody has to turn to the camera and say like and now a word about racism like, well that's i mean that's 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 sort of what malcolm is saying and 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 it wasn't a complaint it was an observation yeah. it was yeah. like was this sort of an explicit thing like um yeah, i think the line no self-respecting black man would carry that shield nor would he would he want to like that's pretty that's very loaded but that it was a conscious decision they made to not alienate a certain audience that is something that malcolm spellman said so you know i just think that that is interesting and i like i didn't notice the lack of the words racism or racist in the show because i and i felt from the beginning as was very apparent that this was what this show was about. But I think that it is interesting that that's a conscious decision they made. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know what? And the thing is like, when I think about Falcon and Winter Soldier, I mean, people debate whether they should have used the word racism or race. I feel like you, the way they did it, I don't think you needed that. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, one of the, the, the main word that I was getting watching, one of the main things I was getting watching Falcon and Winter Soldier is white supremacy. And that and that is a word and a term that a lot of white people cannot wrap their heads around. They're like, well, I'm not racist. Okay. 
<laughs> you don't have a white sheet in your closet. That's great. And you know, well, my parents, my my ancestors didn't own slaves. So, but the thing with white supremacy is that you don't actually have to actively participate in it mm-hmm. to benefit from it. You know what I mean? Like that's the thing that people, and it's, it's such a scary word. They just think of like burning crosses and the KKK and lynching, which yes, absolutely. That's part of it. But you know, white supremacy. And I think that was something that I was, I was catching whatever Malcolm was throwing is the fact that white supremacy is just so insidious that it works in very subtle ways too. It's not just the macro, but it's also the micro, right? Like a perfect example is like when Sam decided he didn't want to be Captain America, right? And he gave the shield back uh, to the American government. Mm -hmm. And then they turned around and they picked a white guy, you know what I mean? Like a beta cap, (laughs) a beta version of of Steve Mm -hmm. Rogers. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to say anything, but we knew what that was about. It was about white supremacy. They were saying the man that needs to carry this shield needs to be white. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And there, there, a lot of people were circulating at the time this... um, uh, thing from the comic book from the Sam Wilson comic book that is like a care a senator character saying like we can't have a black man as Captain America like it's said explicitly on the page mm-hmm. and it's implicit in the show but I don't think you need them to say it for it to be very clear that that's what's going on there absolutely right? yeah sometimes absolutely. messages are delivered more effectively when they're a, a little more subtle you know mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. always but like it's sort of like you know. When you don't even know the shot has gone in, you're like, wait, when's the, when do I get my shot? Like, <laughs> it's like, oh, it's there. It's in you. It's in, it's in the, the show you're enjoying. They did mm-hmm. use the word supremacist. They didn't preface it with white. But you remember Zemo yes. uses the word several times where he's like, anybody who wants to take the super soldier serum, like, um, and is a supremacist. Now, maybe the metaphor there that Spellman and his writing team is mm-hmm. uh, playing off of is the notion of, super soldier serum as a cheat, right? A super soldier serum is white privilege. Is that you, uh, if you have that, you, you can get away with more, right? You get a benefit of the doubt more, or you Absolutely. just have, uh, you know, you're a few steps ahead. And, um, um, you know, maybe that's what this was all about, was who's the supremacist. Uh, you know, he, again, he did not preface it with white, but, but he did right. use that word, which I remember thinking like, well, that's a, that's a heavy word, you know, it's a heavy, yeah. it's a heavy bit of dialogue. To put and the funny way. thing is I find it, I found it so ironic because that is actually one of my famous favorite lines from Falcon and the Winter Soldier where uh, Zemo talks about that, about the, the pursuit of, of, of super, of being superpowered is supremacist. Mm-hmm. But then I was, you know, but then I was laughing because I was just like, bruh, you are like a rich, a wealthy white man. Like <laughs> you are, you are a supremacist in your own way. Well, you don't have the super serum running through your veins, you have money and resources. You know what I mean? Like that, that makes you a, all a, a different type of superpower. I want to talk about how white supremacy and white privilege translates over to the John Walker storyline, because mm-hmm. um, especially his ending here, because we got a couple of emails about the John Walker ending and how people felt about like, um, do, did he, did he wind up here in this place of like, uh, quasi pardon because the MCU just wants him in a place where they can use him in the future. Um, 
And then um, that's what uh, Christelle wrote in and Robert wrote in and said, like, I know the problem is more that John's downfall took four episodes and his redemption only took one. But I thought it would maybe spark an interesting conversation. I personally would rather him go after Carly in that last second instead of the hostages and solidify that Sam represents what America could be and John represents what America is. But Mm. one of the more interesting questions around this moment with Julie Louis-Dreyfus' character Val and John in the end here is something, okay, I, this really is the last time I'm going to reference this Malcolm Spellman interview. He, <laughs> he refer, we don't know exactly who Val is and who she's working for and how much of a governmental representation she is. The fact that, uh, it appeared that John was getting that costume in the same courtroom where he was stripped of his title uh earlier um mm-hmm. i think might be a function of them having julie louis dreyfus for literally one day more than anything else but they kept those flags up so the flags are up in that room that makes it feel somewhat official that he is this u.s agent right um we don't know who exactly she's working for but the comparison that malcolm spellman made several times is to oliver north who is mm. a real figure in U.S. political history, mm. uh, involved in the Iron Contra scandal, and pardoned, just completely got away with stuff that he fully admitted that he did. And Malcolm Spellman was saying, like, this is what they let people get away with. And I, he didn't say this explicitly, but, like, this is what they let white men get away with, right? Mm. Um, in In service of, uh, you know, the dirtier deeds that America does. And we shouldn't be surprised that John Walker – I think my surprise is more like that Bucky and Sam are not colder <laughs> to John they than they are yeah, in, they in the end there. But I'm not mm-hmm. that surprised that he sort of like got away with it governmentally. But um, I don't know. I was just wondering what you guys thought about if we wanted to revisit again that that John Walker ending. Maybe starting with you, Rebecca. Clearly, John Walker is sort of – representative of white male power, white male privilege. Um, you know, as I said, that that in episode five, when they had the trial, right? And they were like, okay, we're giving you everything short of an honorable discharge. I, w- I want viewers to be very clear on this. They weren't really upset at John Walker killing that man. They were upset at the fact that he did it in front of cameras and people mm. saw it, right? Because again, they picked him. They cherry picked this man to carry the mantle of Captain America. And if you go back to episode two, you know, where he had that huge um, introduction when he was doing the Good Morning America segment and uh, the reporter said, yeah, you know, uh, when you, you know, when you were chosen to be Captain America, you went through a whole battery of tests. Right. So not only physical, but psychological, much like the military, much like the police, you have to go through a psychological profile to see if you are fit for service. Now, seeing everything that John Walker has done, we know that this man is not playing with a full deck. To me, I'm pretty sure that he did not pass the the psychological testing. <laughs> I think they knew that this man was a murder bot, and that's why they picked him. Because think about when you think about Steve, Steve was never able to be controlled by the government. He was always rogue. You know what I mean? And like we just saw him in full form in Infinity War. We called him a bearded rogue cat. You know what I mean? That was our our nickname for him. But if you watch from First Avenger. Uh, Steve was always going against the grain. He was always questioning government and authority. And I think this time for their new Captain America, they were like, we don't want any of that. We don't want anyone who thinks for himself. We don't want anyone showing agency. Mm-hmm. We just want, we want a career soldier. A good that is soldier. Exa- yeah, yeah, and that's exactly who they got. And it was really, I think that the, the whole trial and the, the court martial, to me, it was just performance. 
it mm-hmm. was, it, it, and we see the American government do this all the time where they do things and it's only when they're caught and then that's when they give an apology and they're like, oh, okay. So to me, that last scene, going to back to what you said, Joanna, the fact that uh, John is walking out with that new uniform in that same courtroom tells me that there's some sort of government complicity in here. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's just working for Val. I think the government is like, let's do a reboot. You can't be Captain America, but let's make you something else. An off an off the books cap, you know, and like mm-hmm. I th- I think that um something our our producer Dave said to me, like his his theory, we've been talking a lot about this idea of like the Thunderbolts, uh, a group of either villains or antiheroes that depending on your definition, that could be sort of building up here in in the Marvel universe. And uh Dave's pet theory is that Val is working for Thunderbolt Ross, who is technically Secretary of State, so can't yes. can't do this thing himself, mm-hmm. but is having Val sort of if you think of the analog of uh Dave didn't fully go with me on this, but like if you think of the analog of like if she's the Nick Fury and then Ross is sort of the the Robert Redford character, the pain, the like level above uh mm. Nick Fury, right? And uh so she's she's running these folks that she might be popping around, gathering from various shows and films in the service of Thunderbolt Ross, and that's why might they might eventually be called the Thunderbolts anyway. Let's say speaking of sort of this idea of like Sam representing what America can be and John maybe representing what America is, let's talk about Sam's speech at the end. Mm. We talked about it a bit, we got some emails about it. Um Rebecca, how did how did that speech land with you? Um, I mean, it was a little long, but I, I, the thing with me is that I thought it was a, it was a very impactful speech. Cause I mean, this was his debut as Captain America, the same way, I, what was that episode four that was called the whole world is watching. Mm-hmm. So this was like the whole world is watching 2.0 and it's like, okay, let's see what it looks like when somebody really heroic, you know, steps up for the country. So I think what he said, um, was dead on. I mean, and the thing that I, that I caught, it was just really something that I, I wanted to talk about is that I noticed that we noticed, we, we saw that Sam was continually advocating and trying to reach out to Carly, even with everything that she did, even though she mm-hmm. bombed that GRC building, you know, there was a compassion and an empathy that he had for her that other people didn't have. Right. And, you know, Zemo was like, we got to take her out. She's that's it. You know what I mean? And other people that just had really strong feelings about her. And Sam kind of stood as this buffer. You know what I mean? And I think that there is a, a, a significance of that, of this black man who is advocating for this mixed race woman. Right. Because the actresses have black, have white. So I'm assuming Carly's identity is the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that he kept calling her, and especially in the speech and throughout the show, he would continually um, refer to Carly as a kid or as a teen, right? And the reason why that is so important is that when we look at real life, when we look at Tamir Rice, a young black boy that was that was killed, uh, murdered by the police because he had a BB gun, right? Or when we look at Mike Brown, um, and they said that he was this big hulking man, is there's this, this and this has been proven in studies that uh, white people, when they tend to look at brown children and black children, they tend to adultify them. They mm. add at least another four, five, six years to them. Right. So Tamir Rice was only like 11, 12. And the cops were saying, oh, he looks 17, 18. When clearly, if you Google this child's face, he looked like a little cherub. You know what I mean? So yeah. there's this idea like of, uh, yeah, of, 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 of projecting, um, adultifying them, projecting like these very negative and savage traits to them, especially if they're darker skinned. And so I think that was what 
Sam was trying to do is that he was continually, even in her death, is that he was advocating for her innocence and the fact that this teenage girl, mm. while you may not agree with her methods, she was right on the money. You know what I mean? And and basically calling out the senator and the members of the G- GRC, basically, she, he was like, you guys need to get your ish together. Right. And I loved what he said. He was like, if you think Carly is bad, wait till Carly 2.0 comes out. <laughs> right. And, but, yeah. that, but, but that and that, it's a very difficult conversation to have when we talk about terrorism. Right. How it is so easily easy to radicalize the youth. Right. Because they've been disenfranchised. They've, you know, they, they've seen these horrors. They're, they're seeing drones dropping bombs on, you know, on their villages and killing their families or whatever. It's not, it's not that hard to recruit them, right? Not if you're feeding in on their hate. And so I think Sam, what he was doing in that speech, it was really trying to hold the American government um, accountable because the American government is part of the GRC. And this whole idea of, you know, displacement and moving people and, and recreating these fictional borders, it's, it's, it's not right. And so I think that's what Sam is trying to do is that he's trying to stand up for the voiceless, for the people who don't have voices, for people who see these things. But I mean, how do you go up against the American government? You can't. And that's why you go to someone like Sam, right? And which is what Captain America should be. I don't think Captain America should be somebody who's advocating for the American government. I think right. it's, it's supposed to be holding the American government um, accountable. When you're right, you're right. And when you're wrong, you're wrong. I, I, I agree with that. And I also think that one of the things that makes that speech, uh, um, Sam's speech work is later when he's sort of given the too long, didn't read to, uh, to Isaiah while Isaiah is doing his gardening. Uh, <laughs> you know, when Isaiah's like, ah, yeah, I almost bought that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Keep a little bit of that skepticism. Like maybe those are just pretty words, but it's also, God, you know, you have to have something to believe in, right? Right. There right. has to be some guiding light, a beacon that you're headed toward. And I think Sam recognized that we need that. People need that. Our country needs that. Black Americans need that. White Americans need everybody else. Everybody needs it. And uh, I'm going to try to fulfill that. And I'm going to be flawed. And it may be a whole flawed system, but at least we're trying to steer toward something better, you know? And I think that that was what I took from that speech and what it all meant. Yeah. And even, even like the interaction between that final scene you were talking about, Anthony, where he was like, yeah, you know, I almost fell for it or whatever. And, and there was something that Isaiah said to him. He said, well, you're no Malcolm, you're no Martin, you're no Mandela. But there's something special about you, right? And that whole conversation, just even episode five, and especially that final conversation with Sam and Isaiah, to me is really a reflection of the conversations that Black Americans are having right here, right now, right? Mm-hmm. Because throughout the uh, throughout the run of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, there's very strong feelings about the decision for Sam to take up the mantle of Captain America. Now, me personally, I was like, F that shield, throw it in the Potomac and let's keep it moving. (laughs) That's how I feel about it. Like, I just, I was like, you don't need to be Captain America because you're already a hero, right? Mm -hmm. Sam is such a good person and he's following, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's carrying on the legacy of Steve, not Captain America, but the, the legacy of Steve Rogers and also Isaiah Bradley. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, but it was just sort of like, but there are there when you look on Twitter on an average day when these episodes air, there's such strong feelings, especially that last episode. People were so upset. Some people were like, "No, I don't. I didn't want him to be Captain America." Other people were like, "But I get it, 
right? But this idea yeah. of, of hope and optimism. And I think that's where we are as, as a people, as Black Americans, that's where we feel right now is like, we are part of this country, but not. And, so, and you know, and then it's like on a day where you see, which, you know, a, a video of a Black person or a Brown person being brutalized by the police or the military being hit with tear gas, Depending on what day you find me, it's like, yes, we can do better. And other times it's like, I don't want to bother. I don't want to be bothered with this country. You know what I mean? That's that's sort of like the internal struggle that I feel is reflective of a lot of of a lot of black Americans um, that, that are watching this show. There was something that Anthony Mackie said to me years and years ago when I visited him on the set of uh, uh, of his first movie, Winter Soldier. And he said and he said it in kind of a joking way, but he said, you know, uh, Steve Rogers and Sam Wilson would not have been friends when hmm. Steve was in his own time in the forties. It just, it's not that he would have necessarily, Steve would have hated him or harbored that kind of uh, hostility in his heart. They just, their worlds would not have intersected. And he said kind of jokingly, Steve wakes up in the 21st century and he gets a cell phone and a black friend. And that's his <laughs> You know, and like it's a it's that's a funny line, but it's also right. like, yeah, he opened up he opened up Steve's mind to a, a world of an ex, an American experience that Steve mm-hmm. was blind to. Came to know each other as soldiers first, right, running around the Washington Monument. Um, mm-hmm. They became friends, but I think Sam opened Steve's eyes and made him a better Captain America for having known him, for having known a little bit of his experience. And now we see, you know, he's he's carrying on that legacy of Steve Rogers by picking up the shield, but also he helped build that legacy of Steve Rogers, which I think is also a powerful metaphor for for what Black Americans contributed to this country. Yeah, I, I mean, because you're touching on like uh, what they call the magical Negro trope, right? Where it's like, where a Black character, his sole purpose is to make the white character better, right? I hope Whereas, I'm not saying that. I'm not. Oh, saying- no, 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 no. But, I mean, I, I think, I think maybe like when we saw Sam in like, you know, uh, Winter Soldier and Civil War, that could have he he was veering into that. But I think this is why Falcon and, and the Winter Soldier. I, I forget which one of you said it, there's a sort of course correction that Kevin Feige is trying to do. Yeah. I feel like Falcon and the Winter Soldier is sort of course correcting that by saying no sam has his own identity and and i love the idea that he was wrestling with the idea of should he be captain america that felt authentic to me bouncing off of that what you guys were talking about i wanted to talk about the steve of it all because we got an email from someone from amy who who writes in to say um you know this show is not telling a steve rogers story they stopped talking about about halfway through and steve's morality as a measure of what captain america is supposed to be disappears as the more important judgment of Sam and Bucky and the audience take precedence. I wasn't thinking or caring about Steve after the initial setup of the relationships and issues. And I don't think the show wanted me to. Um, and then Amy says, I think this is a rare moment when Joanna is asking a question that the show is not interested in and asking them to accomplish something that wasn't one of their goals. Um, with So I'm going to respond to this and then I want to hear what you guys have to say. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely don't mind someone disagreeing with me, but, I, but I'm going to disagree right back and say I think <laughs> Steve is looming over this whole thing and how can he not be, right? This is about his two friends finding each other, finding their way forward. This is about... Sam not being Steve, but what are the qualities of a Captain America? What does Steve bring to the table? What does Isaiah bring to the table? What does John bring to the table? What does Sam bring to the table? And like, 
Um, how can you not have be constantly thinking about Steve? These are all characters, Sharon, et cetera, all characters that were circling around Steve while he was here. And something that um, I have heard is that they were trying really hard to get a Chris Evans cameo, whether it's old Steve or young Steve, I don't know. But like they really wanted a Chris Evans appearance in this show and it didn't work out for them. And that's fine. I don't think the show needs it, but I disagree that the show wasn't, didn't want us thinking about Steve the whole time. And I'm not, I'm not saying that like Steve is the only Captain America for me. I'm really excited about Sam as Captain America. Um, as much as I'm relieved that John Walker is no longer Captain America. Um, but, uh, I, I'm just curious what you guys think about like Steve is a refraction point for all of these characters we're talking about here. I mean, I would be on Twitter and Steve Rogers was trending almost every week when Falcon and the Winter Soldier was airing. So I don't know that it's accurate to say that, you know, like there was absence of Steve. Like we were always thinking about Steve. I mean, right. the show is really about the legacy. And specifically, I think the thing with Falcon and the Winter Soldier, they did it well sometimes, better other times is really separating the legacy, the legacy of Steve Rogers and the legacy of Captain America, right? Where they converge and where they, and where they fall apart. Um, And so I think, you know, like we said earlier, I mean, Steve was not perfect, um, but I think there, there, there's a goodness in him and there is this, this, this willingness to say, you know what, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe there's a different way for me to do things. Um, and I think that's why he gave Sam the series. And what's interesting about Sam, why I think Sam is going to make a really interesting Captain America once they burn that suit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think the thing that I find so fascinating about Sam, and we saw this is that he has this a tremendous amount of empathy. Yeah. I don't know that we have that many superheroes, particularly male superheroes that have that type of empathy. And, but that's bolstered by the fact that Sam has a history or a background as a counselor yeah. and as a therapist. I'm like, yeah. how many, like, I'm just thinking to myself, like how many superheroes do we have that have a psychologist or a therapist background? Usually they're going to the psychologist or totally. therapist. Yeah. So I think it is, it's, it's actually really interesting to see how he's going to use these skills um going forward and dealing with villains and antagonists or whatever i i think that's that's really fascinating to me the the only one i could the only two things i could think of were jonathan crane and harley quinn both uh you know dc villains so um wow that's that's the legacy (laughs) of psychiatry and comic books all right rebecca opened the door to this so i'm gonna walk through it um, okay. I, I polled Twitter about this and Twitter was very divided. Um, at <laughs> least, at least my followers about the suit. Um, okay. I, I am not a fan of the suit. Anthony's not a fan of the suit. Uh, plenty of people are. Uh, Rebecca, uh, what are your thoughts here? Oh, I hated it. Oh, yeah. I hated it. Oh, I hated that costume. <laughs> I mean, like I said, I joked. I was like, the case that it came in looked better than the suit. I was just like, there was just a lot of like, you know, you see it's a, a, it's a Wakandan. It's from the Wakandans. And I'm like, ooh, I'm, I was expecting like some real high tech, you know, whatever. I mean, I understand that the suit that we saw in Falcon and the Winter Soldier is a more accurate representation of the comic book. And right. it's very frustrating when you talk to comic book stands um, and we're like, it's canon. And I'm like, but if you've if you've been following the MCU a lot of times Kevin Feige has basically said, F the canon. <laughs> there has been a lot, like the story mm. of Civil War, the Civil War movie is 
not really like the comic book. Scarlet Witches and Visions comic book costumes are Halloween costumes in Thank WandaVision. You, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Saying like, I mean, I understand that they they wanted to be faithful to the comic book, but sometimes that real world adaptation it just looked really puffy i like the wings you know i like some mm-hmm. of the wakandan upgrades that they gave to his wings but i was not a fan of this suit i kind of it's too loud it's uh, there's too, a lot of white going on yeah it's just very very loud it's i, I was stealthy at all that's for sure yeah. um yeah. something that i did want to say that a lot, a lot of people brought this up and it's completely true that like Steve Rogers himself went through many, many suits, and some of his early yes. suits are really doofy. Um, mm-hmm. the, the the way the best way to know that is when <laughs> is when Steve in Endgame has to change from his like nomad look into what he wore in uh, Joss Whedon's Avengers, uh, and he just looks dumb. Uh, <laughs> and you're like, oh yeah, that's what it used to look like. Um, so you know, Sam will probably get some upgrades, hopefully, as it goes along. And I, uh, my understanding is that Anthony Mackie himself really wanted the comic book suit um i just don't think i mean he's such a handsome like man i really wanted this moment to be this big powerful moment and i was like oh no i don't like the suit um <laughs> anthony any further further suit yeah, questions one of our, our re- listeners fred sent a message and said it looked like he could have gotten it in line behind john walker at party city and get a suit <laughs> <laughs> Which I was like, oh, you know, would 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 Sam really? Wouldn't he be more of a spirit Halloween kind of? Guy? <laughs> but I thought, oh yeah, it's a little costumey rather than a uniform. I think that's what you yeah. should go for. Is like what looks like a uniform rather than a costume. But um, yeah, you know, I look back at pictures from when my wife graduated from library school, and I've always been pretty square. And she said, why don't you let your hair grow long? And I let it grow down to my shoulders and we don't keep those pictures around anymore and I, <laughs> I i have a feeling that you know that this era will also be one that uh future <laughs> captain america sam wilson does not have hanging on his wall like let's get a different photo up one about this puffy super colorful suit it didn't it, yeah. uh, you know i think we're kind of nitpicking that it was okay uh it just it just wasn't i don't think it it didn't have the texture to it that you would expect um, yeah, they, they, yeah they do a lot of um like that fine mesh sort of look on a lot of the mcu suits now and um mm-hmm. and yeah and, and like you know t'challa's suit was great like give give uh, sam something a little better um let's go really quickly to my uh interview with sarah finn before we wrap up the episode i'm claire fallon And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. So I wanted to start by asking you, um, because Falcon and Winter Soldier is so much about finding a new Captain America, 
you know, what qualities initially about Chris Evans spoke to you when casting First Avenger? Uh, you may be aware it was a it was a long process, right? Finding our first Captain America, our first Avenger, and uh, we kind of went round and round and and came back to Chris. Um, and uh, I think that really what he embodied that we were looking for uh, were sort of the obvious external qualities, right? He was American. <laughs> We've cast a lot of Brits, but we wanted to cast an American and uh, a great actor and, you know, funny and charming and affable and all of that. But then beyond the sort of obvious qualities, I think there were the other ones that were a little harder to discern, right? The internal qualities, his humility, uh, the sense that he had a moral compass, that he was very relatable, that he had this vulnerability as well as strength so that we could take him from skinny Steve, you know, to Captain America, because that was such an important part of the journey. And uh, Chris was a bit reluctant to take on the role in the first place. And, And so ironically, that made him all the more right for it. And all all the more appealing, the sense that he was reluctant to be a star. He he kind of had that modesty. He embodied that, all of the qualities that we were going for. So we were really very, very excited and knew we had arrived, you know, when he agreed to play the part. Chris has said over the years that sort of the playing Steve has kind of rubbed off on him, that he feels like some of Steve's quality has sort of been translated onto his personality. Do you do you agree with that? Or do you think those were things that were always there that you always saw in him, you know? The latter. I think I think they were always there. I think they were always there. Yeah. He uh I think, yeah, I would say that yeah, they were latent and coming out as the more he inhabited the character, you know, and the more that he kind of resonated with those qualities. And what about finding Sebastian Stan? This is this is a character. I mean, there's much been said about his contract and how in in the early days, perhaps it was for nine film roles. How does that change what you're looking for? <laughs> I, I hadn't heard that it was nine film roles till, <laughs> till, till this. So I um I'm going to admit that it didn't it didn't I wasn't thinking that far ahead. You know, when we were looking at Sebastian for that role, and I think, though, that there's a common theme, right, when we're casting any of these roles to go with the most interesting, most complex, most skilled actors so that hopefully they can go a long distance, you know, and and I think it's been so exciting and gratifying to see where Sebastian's come. So and again, originally, this may be known that he was auditioning for Captain America but we saw something there that was a bit darker, <laughs> a bit edgier. And as we continued to go through the process, it seemed like the best role might be Bucky. And so we had some of the heroic qualities, but there was a darkness that he had to, of course, kind of transcend and, and to get to see him evolve over the course of this journey in the last decade has been kind of amazing. So, um, so again, yeah, I think that that, that is even even knowing it was nine films or not, I think that it would have guided the process in the same way. How much do they, you know, when you say we saw darkness in him, so, you know, you think about Bucky and obviously in the first Avenger, that darkness isn't there yet for Bucky. But how much do you know at the time then that you're going to go down a winter soldier path or or you at least want to have the potential to do that? When, when I was casting um, Captain America, the first Avenger, I, I was not yet, this was still early on in my relationship with Marvel. Mm -hmm. And I did not understand (laughs) 
how far this was all going to go. I really had no idea. When Kevin was first talking about the Avengers movie, that was mind blowing to me. So I will admit it was sort of, I was just looking to cast the best person for the role that I was focused Mm on. And, and sort of, I think have continued to do that, you know, and, and look for those, I think what might be connective tissue in the MCU in terms of the qualities uh, in the actors that um, that willing to, to be playful, the the intense amount of skill and and intent and discipline and um, passion that they bring to it. But really, I think every time we sort of going up to bat and just hoping to hit it out of the park with that one part. When you cast someone uh, for a role, like let's say Emily Van Camp for Sharon Carter, and then um, she has this turn in this show, um, which is not necessarily the the prompt for the original Sharon Carter character in Winter Soldier. Um, have there been other instances like that where the twists and turns of the MCU, nothing in future, just stuff we've already seen, has required an actor to do something that you weren't initially looking for in them? Over and over again. And and it, it's been really um, wonderful and, and really fun for me to get to see the actors uh, flex and spread their wings. And, and I'll give you a couple examples and we can go right to WandaVision, you know, with Lizzie Olsen and Paul, um, what they did and we knew they had comedic ability but what they did in that show was mind-blowing i thought just so accomplished in terms of uh their flexibility and and um agility as actors uh i think another one that was a really uh wonderful surprise and wonderful to see how the audiences reacted was uh chris hemsworth as thor as ragnarok came out and as the avengers film came out he hadn't had the opportunity to be so funny and so I think that was another one where it was a very different thing, which was a challenging role at the time uh, to find an actor who could kind of play as guardian, which we equated to Shakespearean almost, and yet be completely earthbound and relatable. Um, so we weren't necessarily testing out his <laughs> comedic ability way back then, but then he grew and has been able to really thrive. Speaking of of like the Hemsworth and Evans of it all, you know, how do you go casting about a major role when the producers, the directors are asking for an unknown? Well, fortunately for me, uh, I think that I've never really gotten a requirement from producers or filmmakers other than please find the best person. <laughs> now, sometimes that, that ends up requiring an unknown. Uh, but I would say that every single process has been different and it's often really dictated by the vision of the filmmaker uh, and what they want. But in certain circumstances, it's uh, kind of identifying the landscape who's out there. And, um, and, and certain times we have had to then roll up our sleeves and say, this is going to be a big search. For example, Peter Parker, we knew when we were going into that, it, I think we all felt we wanted it to be fresh. We wanted it to be something different. We wanted it to be someone very young and youthful. And, um, and so that ended up being a very, very wide search that took a long time. And we saw thousands of people. What do you, what do you look for in that emerging talent in, in looking for a Tom Holland and, and what is your process? Like, are you, are you a theater goer? Do you look for, for new talent on the stage? Like what, what are you looking for? Yes. I, I came from theater and uh, so I think that's always a resource 
we've been in a pandemic and I also have uh, been raising kids all the while I've been at the MCU. So I, I see as much as I can. And I would say we read and everyone on my team, uh, we all see everything we can now in every medium and we read coverage of everything. So we read, you know, American theater magazine and we cover all the festivals and we cover international festivals. And so we're constantly trying to be sponges and absorb everything we can, but having come from the theater, I'm always paying attention to even off Broadway or West end. And there've been a number of actors that have come uh, to us through theater Uh, looking for young talent, I think, or emerging talent. We're looking for, really passion and intent sort of seriousness of intent. Are they ready? Are they applying themselves? Are they um, disciplined? Uh, You know, again, with Tom, we knew this was going to be a big part. And I knew that he had been dancing like eight hours a day since he was nine years old. You know, he, he, he had already shown that he was uh, kind of a professional and could, go on a set and show up for work every day. It's rigorous, right? So I think there's also the skill set. Do they have charisma? Are they watchable? Do they have range? There's so, so many things that we're looking for, but I guess above all, uh, do they really connect with the character? Are they, are they breathing life into this character in a way that is so unique and so exciting that we found, we feel like we have found the embodiment Something that um, I've heard from Kevin and, and folks who know Kevin very well is that he loves he loves comedy. He watches a lot of like comedy TV, and I'm wondering does do, does he ever bring you some of these comedy folks that wind up in the Marvel? Does he ever go? You know, I was watching this, Sarah. Have you thought about <laughs> this person? It's yeah, it's always collaborative, and and when we sit down together, it, everyone's always tossing ideas around. So I think that is an, a, a big part of the process, too. And, I, and you know, Kevin meets with actors as well. So he will sometimes have a particular point of view, uh, for sure, that he's bringing into the conversation. All right. So then let's talk about Julie Louis-Dreyfus for Falcon and Winter yes. Soldier. What was the process of casting her? <laughs> Very secret. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I do believe there had been some meeting, uh, meeting or connection. And so when that happens, then it's like, where's the right opportunity where, you know, what could be the right role and then feeling that out to see if that's something that everybody sparks to, right? This all works when it sparks, when it feels fun, when it feels joyful. So uh, I think that that was a, an amazing idea because she not only fit the character, but it was um, uh, such a cool opportunity to bring her in. And frankly, I think so wonderfully surprising for the audience. Uh, Nate Moore has uh, gave an interview where he called her sort of this uh, a different spin on a Nick Fury character. Is that how you were thinking of her when you were casting her? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's been one of the things that's been so fun about WandaVision and Falcon is is really being able to inject all these different qualities and all these new characters and all these different ingredients in wildly different styles and tones into the MCU. What's the longest lead you've had on a character, like knowing you have to cast a character versus that character appearing finally at long last on the screen? Yeah, that is a tough question. I think it's probably a pretty close tie between Thor and Star-Lord, but I think Star-Lord would win. I think it was over two years from the time that we made our first list to the time that 
that Chris appeared on screen. That's a that's a great segue into this other question I have. You <laughs> talked about um, Tom Holland's dancing background being helpful for the physicality of it all. Uh, we all know because Chris Pratt sort of like publicly chronicled it, like him <laughs> whipping himself into shape for Star Lord. So, what are some of the conversations you have about this? Like, physical you're, you're casting these these demigods, these these physical specimens. Uh, Paul Rudd is like, I don't know, I drank green shakes for a year. Like, what <laughs> what are those conversations like in the casting? Fortunately, that is really not my job. Uh, my job is to find the embodiment of the character. There's somebody else's job <laughs> that is the transformation. But I would say that it informs the process, right? Because, because there has to be a willingness, right? There has to be a willingness to, to, to submit to the kind of intense rigors that it's going to require of you. But I don't, I haven't really had those conversations other than, and then really generally like, do you play sports? Do you dance? Or people coming to me, you know, um, I remember Haley Atwell, when I first met with her uh, before Peggy Carter in her, you know, most perfect British accent saying, you know, she was tired of period pieces and really wanted to kick some ass. Can I say that? Yep. So, and then she worked very, very hard. And if you look at, you know, the way Brie threw herself into training for Captain Marvel, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's so, so knowing that they have that willingness and that desire is, is great, but it's never on my end been a requirement ever, which is great. It's still been about let's, let's, let's find the person that makes this character come to life. There isn't like a, a physical uh, run, now run a mile for me process of your, of your casting. Well, I guess when we've had screen tests, there might be an, an evaluation, you know, with stunt, with the stunt department, but it's not ever, you know, been a, it might, it, again, it'll inform the process. What about the, uh, the shortest time you've had to cast a, a major role in a Marvel project? Let's see the shortest time would would probably be the Hulk. I think it would be the Hulk. We um, found out we were going to cast a new actor for the Hulk. And Mark Ruffalo is somebody that I knew from way back in my theater days in New York and uh, also was a favorite Marvel actor. Everyone, everyone on the team loved him. Uh, and I'm not a hundred percent sure how this came about, but all of a sudden it was, decided that he was going to appear on stage at Comic-Con. And I think we were literally negotiating his contract as he was getting on the plane in order to pull it off. (laughs) That was pretty crazy. It's been really interesting to track the, the MCU and the evolution of the fan reaction to changes from comic book to screen. So I think back to the first Thor and the reaction of casting Idris Elba and how, you know, there was a lot of conversation around the idea of putting a black man in that role. And I, I feel and I hope, or maybe I'm not visiting the darkest corners of the internet anymore, that that conversation has changed a lot and people are more receptive just because it's been a decade. But on your end, how do you allow for diversity in casting options when you're casting for a character that the audience is already familiar with? Well, we're always casting the widest net possible and we're always asking questions and we're always trying to push the boundaries. So I think it's about, about being rigorous. And I, I think casting directors have, have historically done that. You know, if, if there's a lot of male roles, not a lot of diversity, can we bring some please to the, you know, to the conversation? So I think that we are always 
advocating, I think, uh, in that direction. But I also think you're right that that the world has changed and the MCU has changed. And for example, when uh, we cast Tessa Thompson as Valkyrie, I think, you know, she was so amazing and, and so embodied the character and then kind of moving forward into the Spider-Man world uh, with Jacob Batalon as Ned and, and Zendaya as our quote MJ. And, you know, I think that really audiences have embraced it. And I guess my goal is, is, you know, back to the same thing. If it's, if you can't argue with how great they are, I think an audience is going to be a lot more accepting. I hope, I hope. Is there um, an instance when you're casting for Marvel where you really liked a person, but the perfect role for them didn't come around until much later? Yeah, there are many, many, many instances. And uh, um, I think, be you know, what's relevant, because we're talking about Falcon Wilner Soldier is I would say Wyatt. Uh, Wyatt's mm. very first audition in his life was for Captain America. And wow. okay. <laughs> he didn't get that part at the time. He was young. Uh, but then I ended up putting him in another project where he got his SAG card and then continue to watch him, right? That's our job is, is to remember people and to continue to watch them and see the different kinds of roles he's playing and see how he's growing. So when this role came up, uh, there's some beautiful yeah, harmony yeah. <laughs> to bring him in and, and have him audition. And, and all, we, of course, we can't say very much about it. And I think he said he didn't really know what he was auditioning right. for, but I said it's, there's some, there's some, yes, full circle here, Wyatt, on this role. <laughs> so there's a great example. And I think um, Chris Pratt is another example who had come in for a different role. Lupita uh, had come in, Karen Gillan. There's so many actors. Uh, Chadwick Boseman. Uh, so many actors in the MCU that have, have come in and, and, of course, shown what's special about them. But it was a minute before that that part opened up. And I would say that comes into play with all of these. And again, you know, with WandaVision having the opportunity for someone like Catherine Hahn, who also I've been a fan of mm-hmm. for so long and in Falcon Winter Soldier for the wonderful Carl Lumley, you know, there's also those opportunities where there's just actors that, that we all know. Um, but to be able to find that incredibly meaningful part for them uh, in this world has been great. I wanted to ask you a follow-up about Wyatt, if I may, because um, I talked to him a little bit last week about this idea of like, I think of when I think of Wyatt, I think of his sort of like beach bum sort of characters that he's played, right? These really like nice stoners um, that he's played so well. And so, uh, you know, and he pointed out that's not all he's done. But I'm curious, you know, what you saw in him other than Captain-ish, but not quite Steve, um, that made him a, a good fit for John. Well, I think this is okay to say, like, he fought for it. He read for it. He, he auditioned. He, he did an amazing job. And he showed what he was going to bring to it. Um, and then can I ask you, because we haven't uh, discussed him specifically, and I'd love to, um, the process of, an- of finding Anthony Mackie. And you said that, like, you know, at the time when you're casting these things, you're focusing on just how can I cast a Sam Wilson? How can I cast a Falcon? That sort of stuff. Is there at all any glimmer of, okay, but also this guy is one day Captain America in the comics? Or is that just not even on your mind? <laughs> I, I guess the, I guess I I wasn't thinking at the time of that. I was thinking again about him as as Sam Wilson as Falcon, mm-hmm. but knowing his body of work and and understanding kind of the depth of his ability as an actor and complexity as a person and what he's going to bring to it, uh, I do think that 
it allows us to know that we can go anywhere with him. Has there been an audition or, or what comes to mind if I say an audition that you were so sure right away that this was the person for that part? I, yes, yes. I, I mean, I think the, the hardest one moment that describes what you're talking about was with Chris Pratt and James Gunn, because again, it had been a long, long search and, uh, and catching the right tone and finding the right voice and embodiment for the character had been so elusive for, for such a long time. And, and I had sort of had it in my head that, that Chris could be this guy, but Chris didn't see it and James didn't see it. And James has been very generous about telling this story (laughs) where he got quite fed up with me. But then once he walked in the room and started saying the lines, it was almost immediate. You're like, yeah, that's why I have this job. That's why I've had this job. That's why I will keep this job. It never gets easy. (laughs) I'm telling you every single time, uh, every single time it feels scary. You know, is there anything else that you want to talk about that feels feels uh, kosher to talk about that we haven't touched on? I think what, one of the things I would say is is having the opportunity to talk to you today uh, because, right, we've been always, I tend to be very forward-looking. What are we working on? What comes next? I don't have the opportunity to look back that much. And I think it was a fun uh, opportunity to just take a moment and reflect on that and reflect on what have been some of the big turning points in the MCU and uh, the ways that it's continued to, I think, uh, surprise people and go beyond expectations. And I think that's been a really gratifying part of WandaVision and allow, you know, because that show was able to debut first and with the creativity of Jack and Kevin and, and Matt and everyone uh, bringing that show to life, I think has just, it's been um, very, uh, very exciting to, I think, see no one's resting on their laurels. Everyone's continued to work hard. And um, so, uh, yeah, I think that was one of the things that really struck me uh, coming to talk to you today was how much things have changed. And yet the pressure is still on every day, really to continue to hit the, you know, we've set the bar so high to continue to hit it out of the park for audiences and fans. How do you adapt to the acceleration of going from like a couple films a year to all these TV projects that you have to flesh out? I have a great team and I've been able to expand my team. So Jason Stamey has been working with me on WandaVision and Falcon Winter Soldier. And Krista Hazar has come on to do some of the other shows. And I have Molly Doyle has been with me a long time. And I have an amazing staff uh, that luckily has continued to grow because there are many, many more projects than there were a decade ago when I first started out. You know, from the start, the MCU has had a lot of um, actors with a lot of gravitas. You Sir Anthony Hopkins in, you know, a very early film, et cetera, you know, Jeff Bridges, like from the beginning. But there does seem to have been some sort of turning point in the increasing success of the MCU where suddenly it was, I feel like talking to actors, it's like everyone wants to be in a Marvel project. Do you know there it, that wasn't always the case? And now it sort of seems to be the case. Um, does that seem accurate to you? Do you feel like you can pin, like pinpoint where the the turning point was for that? First of all, I don't think that's true. Okay, <laughs> say that not everyone, but many, many, many wonderful actors that we're very blessed to work with. Um, I think the turning point 
uh, continues to evolve. I think Guardians was a big turning point because it was much more comedic. I think Thor Ragnarok was a turning point. I think the Avengers films were. And frankly, I think WandaVision was because people didn't quite know what the streaming world was going to look like. And when we first started uh, casting these shows, I do think there were some questions and maybe a bit of reluctance. But then once the shows came out, everyone understood how sort of thoughtful and groundbreaking and creative they were. And so that's yet another turning point. Well, thank you so much. It's such a joy to talk to you. Thank I'm you so too. impressed by everything <laughs> you do. It's a big thrill for me. So thank you. Likewise. I'm really um, so honored to get to be here and it's great to talk to you. Thank you. Okay, so the last thing I want to do here, this is a, this is a, a prompt, a thought prompt uh, from one of our listeners, Christina. It's the last thing I want to put you guys on the hook for. Um, <laughs> she she asks what our favorite MCU quote is. She says, mine is when Sam says, uh, it's not a better world if you're killing people. It's just different. It reminds me of, a, it reminds Christina of a Mr. Feeney quote from Boy Meets World that has stuck with me since childhood. It's not enough to survive in this cold, cruel world because then you simply become part of it. You must have a desire to change it, to do what you need, a strong mind and a good heart. I think this is what made Steve such a good leader and it's what's going to make Sam a good leader. So Christina wants to know, Either MCU as a whole or Falcon Winter Soldier, a favorite quote. Let's start with Anthony Bresnikan. I'm going to, I came up with something specifically from the Falcon and the Winter Mm -hmm. Soldier. And it was, it's a line uh, that I like because I think it's something that a lot of the characters have been asking. Although the line when it's spoken is not cool. Uh, It's when, when, um, uh, when John Walker basically says like, do you know who I am? to the to the guy that they're raiding and that phrase right is right up there with i'd like to talk to your manager (laughs) (laughs) Uh like oh this is a jerk do you know who i am and i think bucky is asking that question sam is asking that question isaiah is not it feels like maybe he has the answer to that i'm nobody you know he just wants to lay low and not be remembered or not be noticed after the hardship he's been through, Sam is trying to figure out, he's circling what that question means, what his identity should be. Bucky is trying to wonder if he's defined by the worst things that he's ever done. And that question is, I think, who we as the audience, uh, that's something we're grappling with, right? Who am I? What, what am I? What do I believe? What do I not know that I am? Um, I, I think one of the things that Rebecca said on the Spectrum Lounge podcast was that she was glad that uh, you said Bucky, you were glad Bucky wasn't like just wasn't the one that they gave that Steve gave the shield to that he still has work to do. And his mm-hmm. journey in this movie or in this series, Malcolm Spellman keeps calling it a movie, by the way. And all this I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, but it's a, it, one of the things he, his journey in this series reminds me of is the thing that I think a lot of white Americans who, who have decency or, or strive toward decency are asking themselves, which is like, what did I pick up that I didn't mean to? What did I learn as being a part of the system that I would like to unlearn or make sure that I don't perpetuate? And for as much talk as we have given to like carrying the legacy of Steve Rogers, I think that's zeroing in on it as one person. But if you just think about life in general, we are constantly in this continuum of 
the baton being handed one generation to the next. You know, life is so short, which is what you realize when you hit your 40s <laughs> and you realize you're kind of at the halfway mark. And uh, the last generation can only carry it so far. And then it's up to you to pick it up, whether you want to or not. You've got to pick it up and move it forward. And that really, where you move it is answered by the question of who am I? And so do you know who I am? I think is a defining line for me because it, it's, it's a question I think uh, each of these characters is asking uh, of him or herself. Excellent. I love that. I love that. Rebecca, what you got? Um, it's, a, it's a tie between the two, but uh, my first one, Falcon, both of them are from Falcon and the Winter Soldier, uh, both from episode four. Uh, this one was towards the end of episode four when uh, Carly decided to call Sarah. I think that that's when she felt that Sam had betrayed her. And so she thought, OK, I'm going to call his sister so we can set up this meeting. And so Carly is basically upset. She was like, your brother is working with this, you know, new beta cap with John Walker. And, <laughs> you know, I betrayed. And, uh, you know, Sarah makes it very clear. She was like, my brother is not working with that man. <laughs> he has nothing to do with that. And then I love what, what Sarah says to Carly. She says, my world doesn't matter to America. So why should I care about its mascot? And I got to tell you, throughout watching this whole experience of these all six episodes of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, to me, Sarah's character spoke to me, there's there's a there's a connection that I have with her being this black woman in America. But that saying pretty much crystallized how so many of us, particularly black women, are feeling right now in this country where it's just like, you know, we look at Stacey Abrams, someone who's just like this powerhouse, you know, even though we know that the election was stolen from her and still got her hands dirty and was like, all right, I lost that election, but we're going to get a new president into this office. You know what I mean? Um, so even in a in a a world that doesn't respect her, that doesn't respect her race or her gender, she's still thinking about the greater good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but I, but I think what Sarah said, it was just sort of like, you know, I'm, I'm this widow, I'm trying to run this business and trying to raise these two boys, these two black boys, you know what I mean? And so she was like, I'm not really caught up in all these politics and running around and shenanigans. Um, and then the other one, which I think is really something that I think uh, this saying, I, I I feel like phase four of the MCU, they can't ignore this. Like it's been said, the gauntlet's been thrown uh, where Zemo says the desire to become a superhuman cannot be separated from supremacist ideals. Mm. That, that is so loaded. And mm. then you drop that in the middle of the, the MCU and you can't, you, I, I don't think you can go on um, and do, you know, phase four five and six without circling back. Like I hope that phase four will kind of, revolve around this idea um and and just how you know when they're rolling out these new franchises and new superheroes is to wrestle with this idea of when you're a superpowered person um we saw it with wanda it, it was very easy for her to go dark you know what i mean to use her powers to to hurt people and harm people um so I, I'm, I'm hoping that they will keep that in mind because I, I thought that was a very powerful statement i love that Excellent. Joe, what's yours? Uh, mine is not from Falcon and Winter Soldier, but it pertains to Falcon and Winter Soldier, I think, which is uh, my favorite in quote in all of the MCU uh, is one that is shared by both Steve Rogers and Sam Wilson. Uh, and it is on your left. Um, ah! It's just like, I get kind of like cry when I think about it. I think, yes. you know, it's that moment uh, 
you know, when when we rewatch those those like in theater videos of people losing their minds during Endgame at the end, um, seeing T'Challa walk through the portal, seeing Steve Rogers say Avengers Assemble. But for me, like I started crying when I heard Sam say on your left, you know, like that was just mm-hmm. like, I got you. I'm here for you. <sighs> I, I'm your guy. And you're not alone. Like Steve Rogers is ready to take this on all by himself, but he's not alone. That's I'm like, I'm kind of teary about this. Like uh, that's the emotional <laughs> impact of all of this. And that's, you know, to, to Rebecca's earlier point, that's who Sam Wilson is, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm here for you. Uh, in his counselor role, in his captain role. Like, Carly, I I don't agree with you, but I am listening to you. Mm. You know, I'm on your left. I got you. And oh, okay. um, I just, it, yeah, it means a lot to me, <laughs> that line. On your left, like leftism is kind of like, you know, that's progressivism too. And, and one of the things my wife pointed out, she is a Marvel, total Marvel geek. And she pointed out that uh, Steve uh, Rogers is, Captain America suits, the star was always like in the center of his chest. Hmm. And on John Walker, it's over to the far right. Wow. That's right? interesting. Yeah. Wow. That's his that's his that's his US agent placement, but that is interesting. I hadn't yeah. thought about that. You know, like it is on the far right. And like, mm-hmm. so I don't know. I I'm not maybe I'm reading too much into on your left, but I think of, you know, that's where the Listen, read whatever you want to on on your left. That's what that's yeah. the beauty of those three words, you know. No, I like I like that interpretation. I yeah. I'm gonna have to go back and watch. <laughs> I'll give that a shot. That's to my wife. She discovered that. She knows that's that. dope. Yeah. Um, so that's it. Those are our, our MCU thoughts and feelings and our Falcon and Winter Soldier thoughts and feelings. Obviously, like these characters are going to be springing forward. We're going to be seeing uh, Captain America 4 eventually in, in theaters. Um, and anything like what what do you most want? I guess I'll ask this one last quick question. Like, what do you most want to come from this? We get this ending moment that's very sort of uplifting of like, you know, Bucky invited to the cookout, like staring out into like the beautiful, the beautiful sunset sort of moment for them. But what do you, what do you want for them or from them going forward? I guess, Rebecca. Um, a few things. Um, I'm going to be open and say that I am on the Bucky and Sarah shipdom train. Uh I I love them. It was just a small moment in episode five, but I'm invested and from what I understand, that there's lots of uh, fanfic being written about Bucky and Sarah. Um, rated G to rated R, depending on you know how your heart <laughs> oh, can wow. handle. I, I've read some of them. It's pretty juicy. Um, so I, I kind of want to see that relationship develop, uh, hopefully, if, 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 if that's what happens. Um, the other thing I would love to see... Um, because Carl Lumbly was just tremendous in the mm, series and I, and I think he was such a lynch. I don't know that the show would have worked with, we would have gotten like a buddy action show, but he just brought this levity and gravitas, um, mm-hmm. to the show. I would love to, for them to keep Isaiah as a mentor of sorts to Sam, because now that he's Captain America, I don't think his journey is over. It's just beginning because we don't know how America is going to accept a black Captain America. Um, So I I would love Isaiah to be a mentor of sorts to Sam to kind of keep him on the path, right. To kind of remember, you know, where he came from and, you know, certain missions, maybe that's not what you need to be doing. You know what I mean? To kind of be Mm -hmm. his eyes and ears. Um, and yeah, and and I would love to see like with Bucky. I'm not sure if he's holding if he's going to keep the Winter Soldier moniker because that's kind of like indicative of his past life. I don't know, but I mean Sebastian Stan. I, I think 
because wait, uh, the first movie was like 2010, 2011. He's been with the MCU for almost a decade, right? Yeah. Um, and I feel like he's really grown into that role. So I, mm-hmm. I, I definitely want to see more of him and more women and more women of color in the MCU. Like I, I was just so excited about Tiana Paris in uh, WandaVision. I had some issues with how they depicted her character, but I think with Secret Invasion and Captain Marvel 2, we're, we're going to see we're going to see Tiana Paris do some stuff. I'm, I'm really excited for her. How about you, Anthony? Uh, I again, I have to say, like, uh, can I just ditto all, <laughs> like, <that> was, <laughs> all for those things? I, I, I kind of wonder where what's left for Bucky to do. Um, he's had quite a a run. Um, but I think a lot I, of people I, were I, really I, worried that he was going to die at the end of this. That that mm-hmm. that that, that, that was going to be the end of his arc. Um, and I'm glad he didn't. But anyway, sorry. What were you saying? I like this friendship between him and in uh, and and, uh, and Sam, and I'd like to see where that goes. But really, I, I want to see the next challenge that Sam faces, and I'm all for uh, more Carl Lumley as uh, mm-hmm. uh, as a uh, uh, Isaiah Bradley and Eli as his son uh, right. or grandson, grandson rather. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, we know that he, in the comics he becomes a uh, 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 superpowered individual, and uh, so I, 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 I just think it would be a shame if they created a character that powerful and then didn't bring him back uh, for uh, a couple more runs of uh, story. I think there's a lot there. Yeah, my understanding. Okay, is, what, can, you know, of course, thing about Isaiah Bradley. I meant to say this at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the reason why I'm really fascinated about Isaiah Bradley too is that I'm sure Malcolm had his reasons for bringing him onto the show, but it's like they really put a time bomb in the MCU because his presence is just gonna be like we're just looking at a lot of people. It's sort of like pulling on a thread of a of a bad cheap sweater or a rug, and it's kind of gonna be interesting to see how it unravels to know mm-hmm. who knew what and who knew when. Um, so I, I'm I'm interested to see how they're gonna tackle that in Phase Four. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, I'm all, I'm, I'm with you guys. Um, more, more call only always. I'm always interested in what, what's going on in Bucky's damaged little head. Um, my favorite <laughs> for forever is, is Bucky. Um, so yeah, I, I would love to see him, uh, as a, as the token white guy of the Wakandan show. If, if indeed they do have <laughs> their, their regulated token white guy in that show, I would love for it to be the white wolf himself. Bucky. Um, all right. Well, that is it for us. Rebecca, if folks want to hear more from you, where can they find you? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm on Twitter, Twitter and Instagram. It's film fatale and uh, film fatale underscore NYC, both on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and my podcast is the Spectrum Lounge. Uh, you can find it on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple, and also on YouTube. And Anthony Brosnikin. You can just find me writing away at vanityfair.com. All right. You can also find me there. You can find me on the Little Gold Men podcast and you can find uh, me here in the Still Watching Feed talking about Kate Winslet and murder um, in the Mayor of Easttown uh, coverage that Richard and I will be doing going forward. And uh, maybe we'll be getting the band back together in June, probably for Loki. Uh, But we will see all of you hopefully then. 